From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Yute Wong returns to the show this week. Yute Wong is a Guggenheim Fellow and a professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he's the author of several books. And uh, we spoke when he published Charlie Chan, I think that was maybe 10 or 12 years ago, uh, The Untold Story of the Honorable Detective and His Rendezvous with American History, and it's a fantastic book. And since then, he wrote Inseparable, the original Siamese Twins and Their Rendezvous with American History, and his newest book, Daughter of the Dragon, Anna Mae Wong's Rendezvous with American History. Yote Wong, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Well, thank you for having me again, Gary. Uh, uh, it's a trilogy of rendezvous with American history. Uh, what, how do these books fit together in your mind? Well, as you see, I, I'm, you know, I don't know if I need to apologize for the repetitiousness of the yeah. subtitle, but hey, I'm a Mr. Buff, you know. Uh, I started out with Charlie Chan, a Chinese detective, uh, a controversial, you know, cultural icon. And so uh, overall, you know, the three books uh, are part of the trilogy, right? Uh, and I'm interested in really uh, telling the Asian American story in the making of American history. So uh, Charlie Chung, like I said earlier, you know, a controversial cultural icon, uh, loved by millions of his fans, but very much uh, hated to some extent, right, by Asian Americans. Uh, um, and uh, the second book, uh, Siamese Twins, Chang and Ang Bunker, right? Uh, this is a 19th century story. Uh, this uh, two uh, conjoined twins, um, uh, born in Siam and nowadays called Thailand, and brought to the United States, uh, they became uh, a freak show celebrity, right? <laughs> made, eventually, they broke free from their owners and made a lot of money for themselves and became really rich men and settled very comfortably uh in the Deep South, uh, a small town in North Carolina, and married two white sisters and had 21 children. <laughs> so amazing. it was an amazing uh, American story. And and so the, the this current one, the last one, Anime Wong, um, of course, was a, a, once again, a Chinese icon and one of the most beautiful, you know, actresses. And she was really the only... I would say genuine, real Chinese face uh, on the screen for decades uh, at the time when yellow face, right? Caucasian actors putting on uh, makeup uh, to play Asian characters was really the the standard practice in Hollywood. So this is a, the trilogy. Well, one of the things that I find wonderful about your writing is that you don't make very many judgments you never say oh this is racist or this is terrible you just simply tell us what happened and so I, i'd like to kind of get a little uh, deeper into that i mean you didn't refer to uh lawrence olivier's othello as blackface and i had a, a student in my film appreciation class at monterey peninsula college tell me that her teacher made her watch a blackface shakespeare thing this was about maybe eight or nine years ago and I said, what do you mean? And she told me that it was this Othello of Lawrence Olivier. And I, I said, and now you'll have to correct me and tell me if I'm right or wrong. I said that that wasn't blackface because blackface was a very specific kind of 
performance, a minstrel kind of performance that required a certain style of performing. Whereas I said what Olivia was doing was in the same way that he would wear a beard if he played Lear or wear a, a, a hump if he played Richard III, that he was darkening his skin because that was the role he was playing. But do you disagree? Uh, well, I think um, it's, I would, I would, yeah, I would say, yeah, Othello definitely was blackface. And I, I can tell you, uh, just a very recent, actually, there was an incident in somewhere you know, at the University in uh, Michigan, I believe, uh, a professor who happened to be Chinese, actually, by the way, and uh, was teaching a class and he played the, you know, showed a film and uh, without trigger warning today called, you know, um, and some students were really offended and uh, the professor actually had to apologize. And so is this is actually so you put your finger on the key issue that I'm deeply concerned with. And this really began with Charlie Chan, right? The yellow face practice and everything. And uh, if you recall, my argument there was really that uh, it's not that I you know, don't find racism troubling, not at all. Uh, but but I think I'm trying to as a cultural historian and I'm really trying to kind of um dig deep into, I think you can call it the DNA of American culture, right? Uh, that, um, that you know, what, what I call racial ventriloquism is that, you know, black face, yellow face, Jew face, red face, basically Caucasian actors, once again, playing other, you know, colored roles, uh, really it was um, quintessential to American art from the beginning, right? Um, I mean, early America was a very boring Puritan country, right? There's no drinking, there's no theater, and they frown upon everything. Occasionally, like a May Day or a Spring Day, you get a you know dance around the pole, and a lot of European visit. Or most of the European visitors will say, "Whoa, what a jewelry country!" And then, lo and behold, in the middle of 19th century, there was minstrelsy, the blackface, and that was really the birth of American entertainment. So for, for us to look back, including Othello, um, to, 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 to understand, of course, we cannot deny that, you know, we should be critical of the of racism embedded in this. On the other hand, uh, we have to understand uh, race and art have always been kind of together. So, uh, I mean, I, you know, in, in the Charlie Chan book, and I continue this argument, especially in the the current one, Daughter of the Dragon, is that the racial mimicry really lies at the foundation of America. Uh, so when you as an individual are watching Warner Oland or Sidney Toler, are you personally offended when you see it or not? I don't think so. Actually, I was quite amused. Uh, let me put it this way. Okay, so... If you're growing up, you know, Chinese or Asian American in the 1950s America, um, of course, you know, your neighborhood kids will come to you and they say, hey, Charlie Chan and do the imitation. I guess you will be offended by Warner Olin and Sidney Toler, right? So, so, um, so let me put it differently. So after I wrote the Charlie Chan book, right, I gave a lot of talks uh, that year all over the country. And one of my talks was at the City Lights bookstore, right? It was at the heart of Chinatown. So I, I was expecting some, you know, um, Chinatown folks will show up. 
And I was a little bit, you know, not kind of, not really anxious. I was kind of thinking, what was, what they say? Were they like, you know, become very critical of me? I mean, I was ready to take any criticism. You know, early on, uh, actually I went on like, uh, you know, uh, NPR on point, you know, to debate uh, Frank Chin, for instance, who was yelling at me for, you know, uh, resurrecting the, the despised cultural icon, Charlie Chan. And, uh, but uh, fortunately, however, uh, at the end of my talk and reading at City Lights that year, a kind of a Chinatown uh, person came to me. I think he's Chinese American, kind of elderly uh, gentleman. He said he shook my hand and said, uh, "Well, thank you for writing this book because we cannot write it." And at that moment, I totally understand. You know, understood what he was saying because for him, from his perspective, you know, it's not possible to to keep that kind of critical distance. And, and for me, growing up in China, coming to America, and I'm kind of really intrigued by what's going on in America, this paradox that the racial imagination really is the driving engine of American culture. I'm not saying we should do more, you know, <laughs> but, but yeah. we have to, uh, in order to understand history, it's like, you know, debating slavery today. Uh, some people may even claim there's no slavery or slavery is good for the slaves. And right. that kind of argument um, we need to kind of um, correct by looking at history kind of honestly in order to understand better how we got here, right? It's it, it's a very complex issue. Um, I remember when I was a kid, there was a television series called um, Rhoda about a Jewish girl in New York, and she was played by a, a Gentile actress named Valerie Harper, who was not Jewish. And, you know, there's a million Jewish actresses. Why did they have to cast a woman who wasn't Jewish to play this Jewish girl? Um and you know, in a way, it's kind of like Mickey Rooney playing um, Japanese, yes. <laughs> and that's terrible. I mean, some of those, uh, some of them are, are, some of these performances are terrible, and others are not so terrible. And so, uh, I talked to George Chikaris recently, who won an Academy Award for playing Bernardo in West Side Story in 1962, who is a Puerto Rican, although he is Greek. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, you'd never be cast in this part today. And he goes, that's true. And I think that's a good thing. But at the same time, we'd never have Anthony Quinn as Zorba the Greek, and we wouldn't have Alec Guinness in Lawrence of Arabia. And now now uh, filmmakers are saying if a character is gay, they should be played by a gay actor. Or if they are right. deaf or blind, they must be played by deaf or blind people, things like that. Uh-huh. So I think we should... Um have this kind of spectrum, right? So there's one extreme that, and that's really the anime one story, right? The most beautiful Chinese woman, actress, most talented. And there's a whole like proven record of success. And uh, so she wasn't able to get a, a big part later on in her career, right? And, uh, and the other spectrum is that uh, a gay character has to be played by a gay actor. And that's the other extreme, right? And to, to, to achieve this kind of authenticity, you know, I mean, what is art? What is theater? Theater is imitation, you know, being able to imitate uh, somebody you are not. And But unfortunately in America, this kind of imitation is tied up with racial imagination and the racist practice in Hollywood. So if we go back to, you know, anime one, right? This is a daughter of Chinese uh, laundryman 
literally born uh, in 1905 in her father's laundry out, you know, in uh, in Los Angeles, and somehow she managed to rise as a global star. And despite all the su- her success, you know, hard work, tenacity, uh, she wasn't able to get a real kind of lead part, right? Uh, with a very few exceptions, we can talk about them. But overall, Hollywood's attitude was that, um, you know, since she's Chinese, then she can't really play a Chinese part because most Americans at the time would like to see a yellow face performance, right? You know, I, I'm 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 wondering if it's if it's really true that most Americans uh, watching would would care. I'm even you know I know that they would do um, you know there's an Abbott and Costello movie where Ella Fitzgerald sings uh, Tisket a Tasket and it has nothing to do with the movie and they put it in because it's entertaining and marvelous but they also put it in in a way that they could cut it out when they showed it in the South because apparently Southern audiences would be unhappy to see an african-american performer but i'm not sure if they really would have been unhappy i think it's maybe the film makers or distributors were nervous about doing it and so they would cut it out and i think you know i i think americans would have been happy to see anime wong in the good earth no i don't think anybody would have not gone to the movie because anime wong is in it but maybe Uh well, I think in a sense you're right, but but we have to kind of back up a little bit to talk about Hollywood practice, right? And there's one rule which really kind of, I would say, like a virtual form of food binding for anime one, which is the anti-miscegenation clause, right? That a, uh, there's no interracial kissing. So so in that way, when, you know, uh, uh, before, you know, The Good Earth was being made, right? I mean, The Good Earth, you know, based on, Pearlbuck's uh, uh, award-winning novel was really the biggest, you know, China film of those years. It's as big as like the Barbie movie today. Everybody was talking about it. We are all waiting for it. And uh, the studio, you know, hired like an army of coolie laborers and spent four years to call, you know, a, a California hillside and a turn it into Chinese kind of rice paddy. And that's the kind of investment. So having done so many films successfully, uh, Anime Wong really wanted that part, the female lead, playing the Chinese farmer's wife. And that would have really, you know, um, did a lot, would have done a lot for her career. And unfortunately, well, unfortunately they cast the male lead first, uh, who turned out to be Paul Mooney, who was an Austrian, I believe, right? Hungarian, right? A, a Hungarian-Austrian. Austrian player, actor. And when that was decided, anyone knew that there's no hope because there's no interracial kind of romance on the screen that will fan, you know, the good old American uh, sensibility. <laughs> so right. so I, I think uh, you are right saying like, maybe, yeah, people in the South will not mind because as a matter of fact, for instance, um, while she was, you know, one one great thing about Anime Wong is that she's so good at so many things, and not just on on the screen. She's also great on theater, on stage, in real theater. But she's also a fashion icon, right? And she can, you know, she had the uncanny ability to turn like working class symbols, such as a coolie hat and coolie jacket, and turn them into a high class fashion. And so, all those years, despite Hollywood's unwillingness to to cast her. In a in a female lead role, um, some of her imageries were 
widely distributed in the United States as a fashion icon. She will bring, you know, she brought the Chinese qi uh, pao, you know, the chong sum, and popularized them in the United States. So yeah, right. Yes, I mean, audience will probably not mind watching her on the screen as a female lead, but because of other practices, other laws, for instance, anti-miscegenation law in marriage and, and many states, and those things, I think, became, uh, you know. Uh, will provide the context in which we have to understand uh, and the anime one story. Right? And, and I think it really still, you know, to some level there, uh, there, it still exists the same kind of, uh, you know, when, when, um, when former president Trump referred to the fact that we don't get immigration from the good. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, oh, it, he called, you know, the, the COVID, you know, Kong, Kong flu, you know. That, yes. That. Right. Um, because an actress like Louise uh, Rayner, who played in the good earth was mm-hmm. not an American. She was a, uh, Austrian, actor. yes. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, she was actually very good, and she won Oscar for that role. Yes. So, so people say, then what? what what's the matter, right? But yeah. of course, from today's perspective, and uh, that uh, anime one would have played quite differently, very differently. And so, Louise Reyna, the fact that Louise Reyna could win Oscar for it, that's because that's the way Hollywood, you know, judges acting performance. What is the authentic Chinese, you know, performance? And yeah. as a result, uh, somebody who's actually Chinese will be deemed too Chinese uh, to to play such a role. And that's really the paradox of America, right? Oscars are often given to performers who transform themselves in a radically different way from what who they are, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know. That wouldn't have had to happen for Anime Wong. All she would have to do was give a fabulous acting job. Um, I beg to differ. It's still imitation. Yes. Uh, she needs to, you know, appropriate and imagine herself as a Chinese farmer's wife, for, for that matter, right? So, so it is imitation. Uh, uh, you know, so so that's why I say you, we need this kind of a spectrum, a range of practices, and. Uh, at the one end, like this one extreme, and the other is the the other extreme, right? Yeah, I guess we should also mention that Anime Wang was born in Los Angeles and grew up in, in the United States. Uh huh. Absolutely, and uh, and of course, and the other sort of kind of irony in her life was that uh, with her after her debut in Hollywood and uh, you know in uh, in LA, and she made a number of really kind of uh, good films and. Um, uh, the apex of the first part of her career was really 1927. There were like four Chinese films or a couple of China flicks at the time. And uh, the irony or the paradox is that no no China film at the time in 1927 um, could not do without having having anime one because she's really the brightest star, you know, in those years, Chinese star. On the other hand, no film could have her as, you know, for the lead role, right? Because of what we discussed earlier. As a result, she went to Germany. She went to Europe, right? So, so she went to Europe to be recognized as American because in the United States, she was, you know, just regarded as Chinese. <laughs> so later on, she went to China. And so it's kind of, she's, um, you know, moving back and forth, uh, an interesting globetrotter. Uh, to in order to make a career for herself. 
We're talking with Yote Huang, and his new book is called Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. Uh, I, I think Shanghai Express is the film that I think of most when, when I see her. She's she right. was incredible in that in that film. Uh, how, how did she get cast in that, and uh, how, how did that film affect her? Well, that's when she actually already uh, went to Europe, had gone to Europe, and really made a name for herself, right? Uh, disappointed by Hollywood, she took off for Germany in 1928, uh, and we're talking about Weimar Republic. Uh, really, it's kind of a, about a decade of kind of sudden explosion of uh, creativity and the Berlin scene and everything. She was stunned, and uh, and but Germany was also Europe was fascinated by anime one as well. So she made a series of German films, and um, I mean the best in those years was uh, you know Piccadilly, right, mm. uh, nineteen twenty nine. Uh, I think it's as good as um, uh, as Shanghai Express, except you know Piccadilly is uh, is really the swan song of the silent era. So when she returned to America in nineteen thirty after spending more than two years in Europe. And she really became, in the period in which she really became a big star. And she also became friends with Marlena Dietrich. And so coming back to Hollywood, um, she made, before Shanghai Express, she made Daughter of the the Dragon, you know, from which um, my book took its title. Uh, She played with Warner Oland, my favorite Chinese (laughs) player, and uh, she played uh, Dr. Fu Manchu's daughter. And this is a vintage anime one film uh, in which she kind of cemented her legacy as the dragon lady, right? So after that, uh, she was, you know, cast uh, in Shanghai Express, uh, co-starring with Marlena Dietrich. And they were, you know, close friends. And so if you, I mean, this is another kind of, uh, kind of um, Casablanca film, in many ways, uh, there's a kind of noirish quality about it. And Dietrich, of course, was great, uh, coming from newly arrived from Germany. And uh, Joseph von Sternberg was really, basically, was in love with her. And making this film, I mean, the camera is all over her, you know, Marlena Dietrich. Every time she appears, it's always full frame and everything, right? Uh, the camera shot and uh, and all that. Um Despite the the shining kind of you know uh, imagery of Manita Dietrich, I will argue if you're like a noir you know fan, I think Anime One was the real kind of gunmoil, right? In the story, in the film, she was the one who actually had the guts to kill um, uh, and uh, take you know took vengeance uh, out of you know uh, for personal reasons. Uh, as a result, she changed history. So she played this kind of secondary role, but she really held her ground next to Marlena Dietrich. And she actually spoke the best lines, uh, this kind of, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler sort of, you know, dead pants. Uh, so she was really great in that film. She's the hero of the of the movie, for sure. Right. Right. Uh, there's a great photograph in your book of Marlena Dietrich and Lainey Reifenstahl and, 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 and Anime Wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's an amazing picture. This confluence, the, a, a rendezvous with history of these three. Oh, absolutely! I mean, this picture again was taken taken uh, well <clears throat> when Anime One was in Berlin. This is a Berlin press ball, and we should mention the three women. Right, the mo- the moment this picture was taken, 
who is the biggest star? Actually, Anime One was the biggest star at the moment because mm-hmm. this wasn't before Marlena Dietrich um, uh, starred in Blue Angel. And so at this point, she was mostly doing like a theater play on stage and everything, something she will continue to do throughout her career, very successful in the United States. Um, and, uh, and Lenny had not become Hitler's camera woman yet. So she was standing in the middle, you know, sandwiched by two German stars. And Anime One was actually talk of the town that night. When when Lady Reifenstahl came to America after she w- had made Triumph of the Will, um, did she see Anime Wong in Hollywood when she came here? Well, yes, uh, except that um, Anime Wong was much closer to uh, um, uh, Dietrich. Uh, did, did they eschew her uh, over Nazi issues or not? That I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I mean that was a very touchy issue for you know uh, for Lenny certainly, and she had to do a lot of very delicate dance in order to you know tackle that issue. And the DJ had the same you know attitude, I guess, uh, toward you know uh, her competitor uh, in all those years because Hitler spent a long time trying to lure uh, DJ back to Germany, and she eventually had to give up her German citizenship and, and naturalize uh, uh, as an American, right? Now uh, let's hear more about Piccadilly. That was a silent film. Yes, and and Anime Wong is the lead, right? So uh, after playing a number of uh, German films, and she was uh, she did this uh, really the swan song of the silent era. And uh, what's great about this film? I mean, there there are a number of reasons. This is a really fantastic film is that uh, it, it follows this limehouse fiction genre. You know, limehouse is, uh, is a genre of kind of yellow journalism on fiction uh, created by the likes of Thomas Burke and later on, actually, uh, Dr. Fu Manchu, you know, Sax Romer's Dr. Fu Manchu series came out of this kind of limehouse fiction. Basically, it's portrayal of uh, a British version of Chinatown uh, called Limehouse. And uh, the, the issues, uh, the, the murders, the crimes, and everything. In this film, uh, Anime One played this kitchen maid uh, at a, a very kind of elite club in West End in London. But she was able to steal not just uh, you know the the uh, the the job as a dancer in the club. She also stole the heart of the owner as well. But of course, once again, we are back on the turf of anti-miscegenation. There's a romance, right, uh, between the kitchen maid now a, a lead dancer at the club, and and the the you know the Caucasian owner, and she managed to lure, seduce him, uh, but eventually she was uh, you know, killed by her jealous Chinese lover. So uh, uh, it's a typical anime one story that her character has to die <laughs> at the end. Uh, yeah, um, do you think that's part of you know, in the production code era, and even before, you know, in movies like Public Enemy or uh, uh, Little Caesar, those those bad guys had to pay a price. They couldn't get away with things. Um, right. And do you think that applies to Anime Wong because she's uh, because she's Chinese? She can't survive in her in her world. Well, 
you will think, hey, <laughs> all those years, all the audiences will be clapping for the death of the bad guys and all that. Well, um, yes, most of the characters, you know, uh, she played, a character will have to die, tragic death. Um, uh, it's kind of ironic in the sense that that plot, that script is like Hollywood uh, cliche, you know, the kind of ending, right? And unfortunately, she had to play all those roles. But there's one exception, however. For instance, uh, this is during, um, uh, uh, on the verge of Second World War, although, you know, the so-called Second World War uh, already broke out in China in 1938. And this is after Anime 1's uh, China trip. And, you know, earlier when uh, she failed to secure the uh, Big Earth uh, role, she was disappointed and she left for China and she, where she traveled for nine months searching for her so-called Chinese soul. It's a soul-searching trip. She, when she came back, um, the Sino-Japanese War broke out, right, in 1937. And uh, all the following years, uh, Anime Wang was very devoted um, to the China war relief, all right? And uh, so she made in 1938 uh, this film, called um, Daughter of Shanghai. And she co-starred with uh, Korean-American actor, uh, Philip Ahn, all right? And so this is like the only, the reason I brought this up is because we, you know, we talk about the tragic death of our characters and everything. And this is like one exception, you know, right? Uh, Shanghai, Daughter of Shanghai, um, that her character was given a happy ending, happy romantic ending, and of course, it was, was with uh, another Asian man, not a Caucasian man, right? <laughs> with a Caucasian man, of course, it's not allowed, but with an Asian man. But of course, the irony here, again, is that um, um, because, you know, Philip Ahn and Anime Wang were actually uh, high school friends, and they were chums. And, um, and uh, so, and the fact that at the end of the film, at the end of the film, uh, Philip Ahn's character proposes, you know, to Anime Wong's character. And you can imagine Hollywood rumor, rumor mill, you know, when Overdrive <laughs> speculating maybe there's a romance between this, these two Asian stars. But as a matter of fact, uh, Philip Ahn was gay. And uh, Anime Wong, as I described in the book, is very possibly bisexual. So, so in some sense, uh, these two Asian stars were using each other as the proverbial beard. But we are talking about this kind of pre-Stonewall world, right? And even ordinary kind of Caucasian actors will have to be mm, very careful. You can be big stars, but they always hide their, you know, sexual orientation and everything. But for, for, for these two Asian actors, uh, it's even more precarious, right? They already had difficult times securing certain roles and uh, the revelation, possible revelation of their sexual orientation will really do them in. So, so you imagine how carefully they had to, you know, tread water uh, all those years. Now, I haven't seen uh, Daughter of the Dragon, but I have seen The Mask of Fu Manchu with Boris Karloff, mm -hmm. Myrna Loy. Um, that, what, about, <laughs> what about that film? That film must be offensive uh, to uh, Chinese people today. I don't know. Well, to Chinese people today or Chinese Americans? <laughs> There's a big difference. <laughs> I mean, you know, so you, you are familiar with my Charlie Chang book and you understand the reception of Charlie Chang films, for instance, yes. in China. 
and China banned the Fu Manchu films, but they welcome the Charlie Chan films, right? Right. And uh, so, so versus say Chinese, you know, Asian Americans in the uh, in in this country here, um, I I think they will re- look at the Fu Manchu films and Charlie Chan films the same way, right? Uh, so I think there's a sort of like cultural difference, and you know, depending where you come from. Uh, although I should confess, I mean, um, the year I I toured the kind of uh, around and gave a lot of talks. I, I actually found a lot of you know Asian Americans are secret Charlie Chan fans. Yes, in a way. Uh, so there's a you know the, the the critical distance. I think is kind of something very difficult to manage, and it's real, right? I, I remember. I think it was James Welch, right? uh, this uh, you know a great uh, Native American writer, and he he wrote something about growing up in an Indian reservation. And, uh, you know, he went to, like everybody else, will go to the cowboy movies and, uh, you know, cowboys and Indians. So on the screen, when the cowboys were chasing the Indians and, uh, you know, trying to catch them and kill them, uh, he was, you know, everybody was cheering, you know, for the for the cowboys. Until a moment they realized, like, oh, holy crap, actually, we are the Indians. <laughs> so, so when you're faced with something kind of seemingly innocent, you know, artistic, a book, a novel, a film, sometimes uh, you kind of totally immerse yourself in the in the artistic world, right? And that's why, you know, I think Plato warned us against poets and artists. And they are liars they're, because they create this kind of empathy. Um, and that is, that's really the power, but also the danger uh, of, uh, of art. Well, in the role that Myrna Loy plays in The Mask of Fu Manchu, the daughter of mm-hmm. Fu Manchu, um, and she is. She played a lot of uh, ethnic roles when she was first getting started in Hollywood. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. And she plays a very evil. Um, it's it's you know I mean it's pretty tame by twenty twenty three standards, but it was kind of a sexual evilness that she had. Uh-huh. She's kind of she's going to have this man for herself, and she's got her giant fingernails and stuff. Right. Well. And, uh, Yes, go ahead. I was wondering, is that a part that Anime Wong would have said? I don't want to even want to play that part because it's a terrible. Uh, well, it... <laughs> you will be surprised. So listen, she spent quite a few years before she, you know, uh, went to Germany. I went to Europe, became a big, really big star, and that's why she was able to play the lead role in Dra- Daughter of the Dragon, right? Otherwise, like you say, Mena Loy would have p- played the part, right? Um, <laughs> Anime Wong was. The reason she left for Europe was exactly because she was sick and tired of teaching people like Myrna Lori how to behave, you know, act Chinese, how to use chopsticks and then, you know, the makeup, how you talk and, the, you know, the fingers and everything. And so now finally, she was able to uh, play a role that had been played by mostly by Caucasians. So today, a lot of, you know, cultural historians or film critics uh, fault her for perpetuating you know, the, the dragon lady uh, stereotype, right? You know, there are two stereotypes. One is uh, Madame Butterfly, and this is her, uh, you know, uh, Tall the Sea, that's in a silent film, 1922. And this is her first time playing a lead role. And now in Daughter Dragon, um, uh, this is the other extreme. Madame Butterfly is like self-sacrificing Asian woman who will die tragically at the end, you know, uh, sacrifice herself for the for the well-being of the white man. And uh, 
daughter of the dragon then she became a menace to the might uh, and you know the white world right and as playing dr fu manchu's daughter and she was a seducer she managed to seduce a caucasian man and an asian man as well so and you know it's she's a threat in some ways so so if you compare her to like menaloi this is kind of tricky imagine her psychology right now you know there are stereotypes that have been perpetrated already and it's like standard hollywood practice what kind of artistic freedom could she have right playing uh, dr fumanchu's daughter so today some people say oh this is so like over dramatic you know you, may, you know that there, there's a scene like you know um when uh, uh <clears throat> ming loi dr fumanchu's daughter played by anime wong assume the role because Dr. Fumanchu was dying and he was lamenting that I don't have a son to carry on the mantle, you know, carry on my task. And uh, th- that's when the daughter of the dragon stepped up and said, that father, you know, I'm your son, you know, claim me. So she became kind of androgynous, uh, you know, uh, character. And so how could she successfully play that against the, all the stereotypes, not just the stereotypes, but it's really... Let's imagine if you're in a studio in front of a camera and there's a director there, right? And you act in a certain way and the director say cut because that's not how Menaloi did it. Or that's not mm-hmm. how what the audience expect a Chinese woman will say or do. So it, I think it's a very intense negotiation. Uh, so today, in retrospect, we really have to look back at the long, you know, uh, kind of arc of, of you know, filmmaking in the past century in order to understand within the limited space that she was allotted, she was somehow, I would say, pull it off, but at least she tried very hard to, to trail some kind of, you know, uh, uh, ablaze some kind of trail for herself, but also really uh, create some more paths, uh, possibilities for other Asian American uh, artists as well. One of the things uh, I, I love about your work, Yote Wong, is that you go off on tangents whenever you feel like it in your books, and, and I always enjoy the tangents because they're always just as interesting as whatever else you're talking about. And I wonder, when you set out to write any of these books that we've been discussing, do you already know everything, or do you discover things when you're uh, doing your research? Oh, of course not. <laughs> and that's really the pleasure of writing, right? You know the story, but somehow when you dig and dig, and it's always, uh, as a friend of mine once said, um, you know, the shortest distance between two points is not a direct line. It's a digression, right? <laughs> because it's digression that, that takes you, you know, my hero in terms of narrative is actually Moby Dick. Uh, it's, it's Melville, Herman Melville, the author yeah. of Moby Dick. And if you, if you have read the book, you would know Um how digressive, you know, Melville is, including earlier, he's like Taipei, his first book is even more digressive. And he can like write two chapters on the anatomy of whale, which people will argue have nothing to do with the narrative. But but how important that anatomy of whale is to the narrative itself. Of course, today, I mean, people are, um, are drawn toward these kind of what I call the content, you know, uh, consumption, right? You, you read a story and you you throw it away as if you know the plot already, the narrative. But somehow, I, I think I'm drawn towards this kind of tangent, as you put it. I think tangents are really important for us to 
to tease out, to understand the connection, because ultimately, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about chain theory or theory or anything, but but it's the connections that are um, that are that are key, right? For instance, let me give you one example. So when she was traveling in Shanghai, and uh, she was uh, uh, she was taken to this American club, elite American club uh, in in Shanghai, but she was denied entry because she was Chinese. Okay, despite the fact she was American. So, so racism followed her all the way to to Shanghai. Um, that's an interesting story, right? But who told us this story? Like, who was the one? Where do we get the story? If you are eager to know about Anime One, then you you may say, okay, that's interesting, and you move on. But interestingly, uh, this story was recorded and told to us by Emily Han. Emily, who is Emily Han? Emily Han is a New York, you know, New Yorker correspondent, you know, who went to China, so-called, in order to become an opium addict. And she, you know, for like seven decades, and Emily Han, who had a legendary life, you know, story to tell as uh, herself, uh, was able kind of, you know, have, can capture this like a, a, a interesting moment. So in terms of content consumption, some readers like, just tell us the story, right? You know, what happened to Emily Wang? But then, of course, who told that story? So, because I in graduate school, I worked, you know, um, with an anthropologist who did field work with uh, Zuni narratives. Mm-hmm. And one thing I learned from my mentor Dennis Terlock is that um, stories come with their own telling, right? And, and that's very important—the scene of telling. And uh, so, so that's why the tangent, so-called, because I want to show how I got this information and how you know who told the story. And I think those are really kind of important. Uh, I, well, I love the tangents personally. Um, were you uh, were you always a film fan? I mean, when you were a little kid, did you like movies? When did you develop into a, a, a well, critical viewer of film? Speaking of you know film, uh, movie movie going. So I grew up in a small town in southern China, where the theater in those years will play just one film over and over and over again for like two or three weeks, okay? Mm-hmm. There's no other option, right? There's no TV, and then everybody, every household has transistor radio, and, uh, but film, you know, so-called film. Interestingly, there's a great variety. You know, we have a lot of foreign films, but of course not from America. In those years, they were mostly from, say, uh, Pakistan, India, Yugoslavia, Romania, these kind of socialist, mostly kind of friendly countries uh, to China. And uh, my dad was really a film buff. And uh, after dinner, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, he would take me to the theater uh, again and again, every night. And it's the same film. It's the same damn film. I had to watch it over and over and over again. So you <laughs> see, that really kind of train, sort of, I would say, I had an early training in terms of stepping outside the story, uh, being able to analyze, because after, like, you know, we watched the film over and over again, my dad will actually will take me out for a walk, and then he will talk about the film, you know, doing impressions and characters. I mean, he's not really a film critic or anything, but he's a film fan. And so at least gave me some training about, you know, treating film as an art. And uh, so it's not just the story, but it's how the story is told. So I would say, yes, I had some early training. <laughs> when did you first 
have an exposure to American cinema? Oh, um, interestingly, we had a lot of underground uh, movie watching going on. So, so when I was a car, it's, that this really happened when I was a student in Beijing, and uh, and there were like underground uh, theaters. And basically, we have bootleg, you know, uh, American films, and uh, and so like like the Oscar ceremony, for instance, uh, we will we can watch that the second day, really, wow. and, uh, something like that. Um, but also, um, at that time, China was opening up. Uh, to be you know, uh, to be frank, uh, while some films uh, facing possibility of censorship will un- go underground, will be imported and played a uh, in underground theaters, but the other ones, such as I remember very well, like uh, Out of Africa, you know, Meryl Streep and Robert Redford, was in our classroom. So we will use that film to study English, and so we will have uh, get a cassette tape, and each one will have a cassette tape, and take it back to our dorm, and we'll listen again and again to practice English and all that. So yeah, so I mean, it's it's a it's a mixed um, bag in terms of what we were able to watch as far as American films are concerned. Well, it worked. You speak English perfectly, right? Well, thank you. <laughs> in fact, I thought you were Robert Redford when I first saw you. Um, the uh, We've been talking about the uh, state of, uh, you know, yellow face, black face, and uh, we're, we're far more enlightened now than we were in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. 60s. But do you think we're enlightened, uh, as enlightened as we're going to be? Are there things that we will look at uh, in 2023? Oh, could you believe what they did in 2023? Uh, <laughs> it's a great question. We are, we are facing a government shutdown. Yeah. We, are, we are facing, you know, uh, we are talking about whether or not Jan- January 6th actually happened. <laughs> and we are talking about Michelle Yeoh winning the Oscar at a time when, you know, people continue to be attacked in Chinatown for being Chinese during, especially during COVID. And I wrote the Anime One book during the COVID when those attacks were taking place. You know, uh, Asian American women were killed like in Atlanta, in a massage parlor and everything for being Asian. So yeah, how enlightened are we? You know, uh, it's hard to say. And that's why, you know, I, I've written these books. To, to look at history and how we got here. And uh, it's not so, just look at Annie Wong. Um, she couldn't get married, okay? We're talking about the, one of the most beautiful women, uh, most talented, successful uh, Hollywood star couldn't get married because, you know, for reasons we mentioned earlier. And so she died a lonely celibate. And this is not so long ago, 1961. And the anti-miscegenation kind of marriage law was still in the books all the way till 1967. So we think it's, oh, is that so long ago, like half a century ago? But a lot of things, you know, uh, did stick around, right? 1967 feels like not too long ago to me. Not at all, yes. Well, uh, uh, the fact that you've, discuss these uh, three works of uh, 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 as a trilogy and they are your books that deal with American popular culture and two primarily about film that makes me worried that you won't be writing about film anymore do you what will you do next oh uh, 
Well, films are always around, and they <laughs> well, I get around to them again, certainly. Uh, so right now, um, I'm working on Confucius, actually. Yeah, mm. the real Confucius, the guy who so, writes the fortune cookie uh, things, right? Right. <laughs> yes. You you pointed out that fortune cookies are not really Chinese in your book. Right, because um I mean once again it's up for, you know, uh, debate. Uh but some historians believe they were initially, you know, uh, uh uh created by a Japanese uh bakery in San Francisco. And it was during uh World War Two after Pearl Harbor when Japanese Americans were sent to you know concentration camps and uh Chinese business and moved in and acquired this kind of niche market of uh, fortune cookie and turned that into um, the obligatory symbol for Chinese fast food. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who's no longer with us, but he was a great professor by the name of Bradley F. Smith, and he wrote several volumes on Hitler's Germany. And he went in 1955, he went to Germany to uh, further his uh, research there and right around the corner from where he was living was a chinese laundry mm-hmm. and, it was, and it was a chinese laundry that had clearly clearly been there for decades that had been there throughout the entire second world war without any uh without any problem and he thought that was a very interesting uh, yes. so chinese laundry and, and i think it's kind of serendipitous right that anime wang the biggest Chinese star those years was born in a Chinese laundry. And as I said in the book, uh, Chinese laundries were really the vanguard in terms of moving out of Chinatown because of, you know, racism. A lot of cities China, like San Francisco and Los Angeles were not allow Chinese to live outside, allow Chinese to live outside Chinatown, except the only exception is that unless you live in your own, sleep in your own business. And as a result, I think the same thing happened with like African Americans, you know, barber shops and all of that. If you, if you, can, your family can just lay, stay in the business, sleep in the business, then the dual use is allowed. So interestingly, they became, you know, laundromat became the vanguard, right? <laughs> the pioneers. And as a result, Anime Wang had early exposure to, you know, growing up in a multiracial uh, neighborhood and, and all that. I think, you know, uh, it's kind of, unfortunate historical fact that somehow contributed to, you know, uh, and became a factor of her success. And this is kind of the paradox, you know, I'm trying to unpack. One, I think one of the most touching moments in your book is when um, Piccadilly is playing at a theater nearby where Anna Mae Wong lives when she's an older woman. And mm-hmm. she, she doesn't want to see it because, because why? Well, uh, unlike uh, Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, who is obsessed with her own her own image, will watch the rerun over and over again in her own living room. Uh, anyone uh, was not uh, willing. Uh, I think it will break her heart to 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 see her past glory. And uh, and at the time, she was only in her late forties and early fifty. And uh, so we're talking about Hollywood ageism to some, you know, and, and they're still around. You ask, like, how enlightened we are. Yeah. All of the practices are still around, right? And uh, uh, so Animal One's career went into decline uh, 
almost in her early uh, 40s. And uh, so so I think for that reason, um, she just was not willing to uh, re, you know, uh, revisit her past glory uh, because she was also pragmatic and determined to come back, have a big comeback, just like, you know, Norma Desmond, that always waiting for the big comeback. And there was one possibly, well, very close actually. So, so she was be going to um, get a big part in a flower drum song, right? Uh, the big Broadway show uh, turned into, you know, uh, to a film and having missed uh, the, the good earth, this will, would be her big part picture. And so when she died of heart attack after years of alcoholism, when she died at, in, at her home in Santa Monica at the age of 56, uh, the script of Flower Drum Song was lying next to her. She was working diligently till the last moment of her life, trying to make a big comeback. It would have happened. You know. It would have. I mean, that's not very old, certainly. Right. Well, Yote Wong, thank you for writing this book. Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. And uh, I enjoyed it as I've enjoyed all of your work. And I really enjoyed talking to you. And, and thank you for making some time for From the Bookshelf. Well, thank you for having me back, Harry. We continue the Fleischmann's East Hour, broadcast for your entertainment from the Variety Theater in Radio City and directed by Rudy Valley. One of Hollywood's most charming ladies and the only Chinese girl who has made an international reputation on the stage and screen, Miss Anna May Wong. to be amongst those present on Mr. Valley's program tonight. For the benefit of the few who do not understand Chinese, the last number I did was a Chinese folk song entitled The Jasmine Flower. And now let's trip across the moon bridge and peek into a Chinese courtyard and listen to what the modern Chinese girl thinks about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm a maiden young and good, on the brink of womanhood. I've been so closely guarded, my growth has been retarded. The things most girls set great store are Greek to me. I'm just a mortal. Maybe so. 
I sometimes think my greatest curse is Wulang Fang, my cockeyed nurse. She stuffed me with the ancient fear that Eve was made from Adam's rib. She says that babies grow on trees like apples do with perfect ease. I wonder. And so I sit here in the sun and let my thoughts run on and on. Or find proof the shining hours watching little birds and flowers. Birds are such darling. Oh, heavens above, the things I've learned from them of love. I'll say so. The time has come, my parents say, to think about my wedding day. The trousseau's made, the day is set. I have not seen the man as yet. My blood tears through my veins like wine. Cold chills run up and down my spine. I love it. Ugly, weak, and small, or handsome, daring, fierce, and tall, with lovely whiskers on his chin. I trust that he'll be masculine. Oh, heaven, give me strength, I feel so tossy, and send me a prize. It's all a lottery. Amen. When I sang this next song for the first time in Rome, imagine my embarrassment when my Italian went completely warm. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf... I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.